The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, The Dark Side of Science Fiction and Fantasy Heroes, an observant Orthodox Jew finds he must make sense of his place in the world after he discovers he has been turned into a vampire and a biotech race against time to develop military-grade dragons. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today, we bring you a conversation with an author who has done just about as much as anyone to shape the face of modern fantasy. She's known for her Valdemar series, as well as the Bedlam's Bard and Serrated Edge series, as well as the Secret World Chronicles and many, many other groundbreaking genre-defining novels. I am, of course, talking about Mercedes Lackey. This week, DJ Butler sat down with the author to discuss her works and her legacy. Also joining the discussion was Lackey's husband and frequent collaborator, Larry Dixon. Dixon is himself a genre-defining artist whose work has graced many a genre novel cover. For fans of Lackey, and I'm sure there are many of you listening, this interview is not to be missed, but it can also serve as a one-of-a-kind introduction to Lackey's work for those who may be unfamiliar with it. Either way, we are excited to present it here on the Bain Free Radio Hour. But first, the news. Let's take a look at the new eARCs. First up, No Game for Nights, edited by Larry Correa and Casey Izell. In a world of criminals, thugs, con artists, cheats, and swindlers, there must be a man to stand against the powers of darkness and corruption. A man not afraid to walk the mean streets, whether they be those of 1930s Los Angeles, an ancient fantasy realm, or some far-flung planet of a future star empire. He is a man who knows that a good man is not always a nice guy, but when the chips are down, he understands that a hero does the right thing, even if it means losing everything. He is Sam Spade. He is Philip Marlowe. He is Rick Deckard. He is Harry Dresden. He is all these men and more. Now join Larry Correa and Casey Azell as they present all new stories of fantasy and science fiction with a hard-boiled detective bent by today's top authors. Grab the bottle of scotch from your bottom desk drawer, light a cigarette, tilt your fedora back on your head, but don't forget to watch your back. This is no game for nights. Next up, we take a look at The Blood is the Life by David Carrico. Chaim Khan was just out for a night of fun, blowing off some steam the way a young man will. After the better part of a year spent in COVID lockdowns, he was ready to let his hair down at a nightclub. But the fascinating young woman who he encountered that night left him with something to remember her by. She turned him into a vampire. Soon Kaim finds himself thrust into a weird underground world of mysticism and enchantment as he navigates life as the newly undead, trying to reconcile his beliefs as an Orthodox Jew with the new reality that has been thrust upon him. 
He is forced to deal with a lot of change to his body, to his mind, to his perceptions, to his relationships, and even to his world. He finds himself in part of the world he had never dreamed of being in, and he finds himself doing things that he had never envisioned being a part of his life. And if he can come to terms with these changes, this mild-mannered young man might just find himself a hero. And finally, Deploying Dragons by Dan Cobalt. Genetic engineer Noah Parker has at last landed the job he's long coveted, director of dragon design for the Build a Dragon Company. With a combination of genetic engineering and a cryptic device known as the Redwood Codex, he and his team can produce living, breathing dragons made to order. But sales of dragons have plummeted, and the Build-A-Dragon company will have to find new revenue streams if it hopes to stay in business. A contract to develop dragons for the U.S. military promises a much-needed lifeline. Yet the specs are more challenging than anything Noah has ever designed. Worse, he learns that a shadow company headed by former CEO Robert Greaves has stolen the dragon-making technology to make a competing bid. Noah's dragons will face off against those of his old adversary. It's a head-to-head -head design competition with the ethical future of domesticated dragons hanging in the balance. That's No Game for Knights, The Blood is the Life, and Deploying Dragons, all available now for a limited time as eARCs. Michael Z. Williamson's Target Terror may clock in at over 700 pages, but we're sure it will leave you wanting more page-turning techno-thriller action. So for the month of June, we're offering ebook discounts on all our techno-thriller backlist titles, including Tom Crapman's Countdown series, John Ringo's Paladin of Shadows series, and the Dead Six books by Larry Correa and Mike Kupari. Details and a complete list of books are available at Bain.com. And that's it for the news. Um, hello, this is uh, DJ Butler. Uh, I'm here with uh, Mercedes Lackey and Larry Dixon. Um, and you know, ordinarily what I would do now is I would read basically your bio off Amazon um introducing a conversation about a book but we're not here to talk about a book today we're here to talk about you guys but in particular to talk about mercedes uh this is the uh, career celebration of uh, mercedes lackey interview for the bain free radio hour so uh larry and mercedes uh welcome welcome to the podcast well i want you to do one at 150 books and i want you to do another one at 200 books Okay. And I want you to do another one at 250 books, and I want you to do another one at 300 books. Uh, deal. And maybe 350 and 400, because Jane Yolen's managed 400, and I'd like to get to there. Okay, uh, agreed. Now, I think 150 is not very far away, right? No, it's, it's, it's not. It's, uh, I think it's about five books away now. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Now, to be fair, am I, th I think I'm right. Jane Yolen writes pretty short books, aren't they all pretty Jane much? Jane Yolen writes a lot of kids' books. So really, we ought to give that kind of a two-to-one ratio, don't you think? Um, I'm, I'm not going to take anything away from Jane. 400 books is 400 books. Okay, all right. That's very generous. All right. Um, well, Misty, welcome. Uh, congratulations on 145 books. That's uh, fantastic. Um, 
tell us uh i i love to kind of get to know you uh with the with listeners who may be new to you uh um tell tell us about yourself where where are you from and maybe when did you first start getting the idea that that you were a writer well originally i'm from northern indiana uh i had an interesting beginning <laughs> Uh, my mom and dad, my dad was was on the GI Bill uh, at uh, University of Illinois as an electrical engineer. And my mom was working in the as a secretary in the psychology office. And I was kind of an unwelcome surprise until the day after I was born. And I was the most welcome thing ever because the day after I was born was the day the Korean War was declared. Oh. <laughs> and my dad had never been shipped out in, in World War II and he would have been activated immediately, but not with a baby. Fantastic. So suddenly I was very welcome. That's fantastic. Um, so, so Mercedes, so Merced in Spanish is is mercy, right? Is that is that right. and or she who has mercy? Yeah. So does that have does saving your father from shipping out to the Korean War? Oh, they they <laughs> named me after Mercedes McCambridge. They thought she had a wonderful voice, and she did a lot of radio acting at that time. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Um, so did you grow up then? So Northern Indiana, this is like Valparaiso or Gary or kind of somewhere. Uh, I was when they moved well when they moved to uh, uh indiana my dad actually ended up not becoming an ee he got a degree in a degree in accounting and then he kind of effortlessly parlayed that into a job as one of the first commercial program com first commercial computer programmers in the country. Wow. They worked for, for Sinclair Oil and they had just bought a giant computer to do all their accounting for. So you can see how having part of an EE degree and having a two-year accounting degree would work very well there. And that was one of those plug, switch the plug kind of computers where their programming was plugs. So that's even before the loom punch card, right? Yeah, way before the loom punch card. Wow. And he uh, he went to work at their facility in Gary, East Gary. Hmm. And as I recall, the computer, because there were was all it was all vacuum tubes and wires. The computer was the second biggest building at the refinery. So it, it was huge. It was like two stories tall and you know the size of, a, of an Amazon warehouse almost. So yeah, uh, it was it was an it was interesting and he stayed with them most of his life uh, when the facility was sold to British Petroleum. No, the city of this facility was sold to somebody else. I don't remember who. And he immediately got a higher offer from from BP in California. So that's where he went. 
All right. So how old? So you moved to California. But I was, I was, uh, I was well away from home by that point. You were done. I was done. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's kind of where I got. Uh, if there's a tendency for someone to be a computer programmer, I guess it's in the genes because my brother did the same thing. He went more hardware than software, though. Interesting. And as for one I wanted to uh, write, I pretty much wanted to write from the time I realized that people made books. They didn't spontaneously appear in the bookstore. People made them. So uh, that that kind of kicked the spark off. So what are what are the books you loved when you were younger? What are the what are the early books you remember loving? Well, my dad was a science fiction reader. And the first science fiction book, I, I, he, he had no compunctions about letting us read anything that was in the house. Mm. So that included his, his uh, rather risque at the time, James Bond novels. And it included his science fiction. And the first, first actual adult science fiction book I picked up was probably at the age of 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. And it was James Schmidt's, um, now I can't remember the name. Wizard of Chorus? No, it wasn't Wizard of Chorus. Uh, Agent of Vega. Oh, that's a great one. Very, very cool. Now, um, I have to confess, I have not read all 145 books. I have read a, a small minority, but I think of you as a fantasy writer. Do you have, uh, I know you've got, a, you've got some series that have science fiction elements, but are, but are you, uh, how, how do you see yourself on that? Are you, you, you're about reading science fiction as a kid. Do you see yourself as a science fiction and fantasy writer, or did you make a transition at some point to being more interested in fantasy? Well, that's, kind of uh, twofold there. Um, the kind of uh, science fiction that I'm capable of writing, because I am, except in biology, I'm not a hard scientist, mm. uh, is kind of good old-fashioned space opera. Uh, and I'm I kind of early on had the choice. My agent told me at the Russ Galen told me at the time that things were deviating considerably. They happened in the bookstores, but it looked like it was going to go that direction, where science fiction was in one section and fantasy was in the other. Mm. And he told me you. You're, you're going to have to make a choice between fantasy and science fiction. Interesting. And because apparently most of the people that read fantasy don't read science fiction and most of the people that read science fiction don't read fantasy. Interesting. So since I already had gotten at that point, the Valdemar, the uh, Arrows of the Queen trilogy was out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of my Tarmacathry books was out. Um, trying to think what else. So it's, this, in that, it's in that time period. So I decided I'd just specialize in fantasy. Yeah, yeah. 
It, it's interesting. I think actually Barnes and Noble has actually done that in the last, I think when they reopened from COVID, basically, they have now put science fiction fantasy into a separate, into separate sections. Yeah. Which they hadn't been, but that, that's interesting. Maybe that's a belated recognition of the trend that, that Russ Galen was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, so were there any fantasy books you, that you read or loved as a, as a young reader? Oh, Andre Norton, of course. Hmm. Um, Alan Norse, uh, T.H. White, mm. Tolkien, obviously. Zena yeah. uh, Henderson, uh, Vera Chapman. Uh, Ted Sturgeon, he's... I think of him mostly as a fantasy writer rather than a science fiction writer. Mm. Uh, I mean, I was reading a lot of everything that was in the fantasy and science fiction category. So, Mm -hmm. but those are the ones that stand out in my mind. So, uh, so how old were you when you took a crack at it? And like, how how did you, how did you, I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I wrote a really bad manuscript. Okay. And you had to like, you had to send physical mail, right? This was in the, in the eighties. And so I wrote some letters and I mailed a couple of manuscripts off and it took forever. Um, how, how did you go about this? What, how did you end up getting your first book out? Well, I started writing in junior high, hmm. but I didn't show it to anybody. I kept it in spiral bound notebooks under my bed. Uh, I didn't actually start writing well I started writing fan fiction right after college when I discovered the SCA and then I discovered science fiction fandom and then I discovered fanzines so I started started writing for the fans for fanzine stuff and I didn't start trying to write professionally. I'm thinking about this here. I don't think I started trying to write professionally until I moved to South Bend to get a computer job with American Airlines Mm. and got a one of the first relatively inexpensive, I had to take out a loan for it, mm-hmm. home PCs. Uh-huh. It was $2,000 in 1982 dollars. That's a lot of cash, man. Yep. Um, So I started mostly with short stories. Marion Zimmer Bradley, I was writing Dark Over fan fictions. And when she put out her, her Friends of Dark Over anthology, I submitted a story to her. And that's, that's actually the first story I, I sold. It's not the first story that was in print because I also got some stuff in Fantasy Book Magazine that came out sooner than the anthology did. Yeah. 
about the same time, it sounds like. Uh, it was about a six months later that the anthology came out. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So, uh, uh, so from there to from there, oh, actually, a little detour. Okay, you mentioned the SCA. Now, I think of you and Larry as being, among other things, people with very interesting. I don't want to say hobbies, but pursuits, right? Uh, falconry. Uh, like, do do you ride? Do you? I, I mean, I, you have such a love of horses. My horse is a hole in the pasture you pour money into. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, okay. So uh, your, your interest in the SCA, what, like, what did you do? Were you out there fighting with uh, swords and shields or like, what, what was the SCA? Well, I have a very low pain tolerance. So no, I was not getting hit in the head with a stick. Um, I was a medic. Oh, cool. Yeah. Neat. Um, okay. All right. Uh, so, uh, okay. So you get a couple short stories out. Uh, does that get you excited about, hey, I think I can do the novel thing? Or are you a short story writer for a while? Uh, I was a short story writer for a while and just trying to get some, some of that. I mean, I got a lot of the million horrible words out in the fan fiction. Sure. Uh, you got to write a billion really wretched words before you can start getting to anywhere near being proficient enough to be good. Yep. Um, and as dark over, what else were you writing fan fiction for? Oh, I did a couple Star Wars things. Uh, I did a Star Trek story. I did a... I did an early Diana Tregard series where she did a lot of crossing over into parallel fiction worlds. So uh, what was whatever I was interested in at the time became one of those stories. One of them was a Grimjack comic story. <laughs> if anybody remembers Grimjack. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a real mixed bag. It was whatever I happened to like at the time and uh, or had just finished reading and I'd, I'd, I'd do something there. Uh, so now in the, in the early 80s, uh, so I remember I was at the end of the 80s, I was like on Bulletin BBS kind of websites online. But early 80s is probably pre-Bulletin pre board services, right? So these oh are yeah, there was nothing out there. Yeah, so you're publishing in fanzines or you're just writing them, giving them to friends or just writing paper them. fanzines. Paper, which are for context, these are like amateur, made for the love of it, uh, like photocopied kind of uh, magazines. Yep, sure are. Yeah. Stay put uh, together. Stay, yeah. Yeah, maybe a different. We're really making it if you had, you were really making it if you had a, uh, uh, a contact with somebody that could do the double-sized oh, eight and a half by 22 and you had a saddle stapler. And you Boy, you it. were making it then. Yeah, <laughs> this is a high life. You're impressive. <laughs> You're impressive. You've got a saddle stapled fanzine. Oh my God. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so um, 
Okay, so uh, so so how do you get to so your first book's published by Daw? Is that right? The Valdemar right. Arrows trilogy. The, the Arrows of the Queen was the first the first uh, first of the uh, Valdemar books. Which, for the record, uh, I have read. I have read. Now, the first Mercedes Lackey I ever read was the Last Herald Mage trilogy, and I want to talk about that a little bit in a bit. But well, so good. I, that's because because that's where when Larry comes into the picture. Oh, good. Because I want to get Larry. He's being very polite, but I know he has. He's a doll. Um. So, uh, so how how do you get to the point of uh, putting a novel in? How did that happen? Well, due to being in the uh, in having discovered science fiction fandom. I also discovered filking. Oh, yes. And for those who have no idea what that what filk is, it is a very, very long story. Uh, it's because of a typo where someone was writing a letter. To, it was the I wish I could remember who it was because mm. she told me on Quora. But it's one of the world cons in like the 1950s, right? Like this was actually a letter that one of the science fiction pros wife hmm. wrote. She she contacted me on Quora to tell me about this because I was talking about Silk on Quora and she's on Quora. I thought this was hilarious, but I cannot remember her name. And I can't remember it wasn't Fred Polk. Maybe it was Fred Pohl's wife. Uh, I think maybe it was Fred Pohl's wife. Anyway, she uh, was writing a letter to somebody and she mistyped I for O. Mm. And I guess part of that letter got excerpted in a fanzine. And then the fanzine got picked up by the LA Times for the LA Worldcon back then. And the typo was was I for O. They were talking about the science fiction folk music that people were doing. Uh, except it came out science fiction filk music. And the LA Times has no idea. These are all these crazy people in, in costumes and, and right. arms full of comic books. So they might have something called filk. What do they know? So they put it in and, and that's when it went, went mainstream. So it's basically acoustic music with a science fiction or or fantasy theme which can also include a lot of traditional folk music mm -hmm. because there's a lot of traditional folk music that's about the fae and the and the elves and things like that so but strangely enough it can also include some stuff about a history Mm -hmm. uh, Juanita Colson is particularly well known for for her uh, her uh, story her her songs about uh, Indiana history. Mm -hmm. And and the filk music scene continues today. And one of the things I oh yeah I'm I'm very much at the fringe of it, but I I, I go to these things and I play sometimes and. And, and one of the great things about it is it remains a truly amateur scene. Anybody, you go to a filk event. A bar Anybody bar. can walk in. Yeah, you sit down, you have a right to, you know, pick, pass, or play. You can That's it. do what you want or ask somebody else. And um, yeah, it's wonderfully, it's, it's true, true folk music. Yeah. Spelled filk. So um, anyway, um, I got to be kind of a big thing in Midwestern folk, filk music. And that was how I met C.J. Cherry. 
And I moved down to Oklahoma and I started going to the local cons and there was CJ and she was just getting into folk music. And I was trying to, we, our positions were reversed. She was the big name pro in, in writing and I was the itty bitty, I've got a couple of short stories out. But on in the, when we got into the filk room, I was the big name filker and she was the, and I was just encouraging her like crazy because she's astonishingly shy. Mm. Uh, I guess kind of I'm astonishingly shy too until, until you got me behind a guitar. So anyway, um, eventually she asked me if I if I was working on a book and I said, yes. And she said, can I see it? And I said, no, that's because I didn't want it to be up. All right, time to get out the bleeper. I didn't want it to be a pity fuck. Uh, I understand. I wanted her to, I wanted her to think, okay, I've listened to these songs. I know she's got some professional material out now. I think it's worth a look at. So I made her ask me three times before I, I passed it to her. And it came back with commit trilogy on the top of it. And thus began the infamous 10 rewrites under CJ Cherry. So now was she also, was she editing as well? Um, she basically was my alpha editor. Okay. Or about the first, certainly all three books of Arrows of the Queen. Hmm. Um, I think the Tarma and Kethry books came in before the Herald Mage books. So probably the first two of the Tarma and Kethry, and then when I got to the uh, to the Herald Mage books, I felt pretty confident, so I I went ahead without her. Yeah. So so had she gone to her editor, and the editor said, "Oh yeah, this is good. I want you to go get three of these." Then. Uh no, she's no no you this I went the, the appropriate way. Mm. Uh, what I did do is I got a letter of recommendation from her. Mm. And she, she wrote a letter of recommendation to me for me to Don Walheim. Mm. And I enclosed that with the manuscript. Yep. And she said, I can't guarantee that anything is going to happen with this just because I've sent a letter of recommendation. But it means that the first reader will save the manuscript to read on a good day. <laughs> Okay. So, that the, so that there will be nothing that is interfering with his reaction to the book as he reads it, as opposed to, I nearly got caught in the damn door on the, on the, uh, on the L, and some woman snatched my coffee right out from underneath my nose, and the coffee, the coffee maker in the office wasn't working, so the coffee was cold all day. <laughs> So it was, he saved it. When the first reader turned out to be Betsy Wolheim's husband, uh, uh, Larry. Peter Stanfill. Thank you. Of Peter Stanfill and the bottle caps. Okay. Since you are a banjoin man, <laughs> you might also know him as the man who played banjo on They Might Be Giants Fingertips. Okay. 
Interesting. Just on that's just one track, right? Finger or the whole uh, is there a CD? That's fingertips. Yeah, he's in fingertips. Okay, okay, okay. That's interesting. He's also famed around the world as a bottle cap collector. He's a historian, amateur historian, and records the history of the different brands that use the different bottle caps in his multi ten thousands collection. Okay. All right. So that's for you. It's a cheap, hey, it's a cheap hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. So, uh, so did you get a, uh, this trilogy was very much of the age, right? I mean, I remember. Oh, very definitely of the age. Yeah. Very definitely of the age. So did they and come it, back? It was, a, it was an interesting, how I found out they were interested in it was when the NASPIC was in Austin, uh, for the again for the people who don't follow fandom or old fandom uh, the world con periodically goes away to another country mm. and when it goes away to another country there is still a big convention but it's the north american science fiction convention yep or nasfic and that was when nasfic was in austin in austin and Betsy Wolheim, who had been taken over from her father, her dad had retired at that point, actually invited me to go to dinner along with uh, CJ and some of the doll writers, which I thought was a nice portent. And as we are walking our way towards the, uh, the uh, dinner venue, uh, she sort of grabs my elbow and pulls me back to the back of the crowd and says, listen, we're really interested in this trilogy of yours, but it's going to need a lot of work. And I remember saying, Betsy, if you had told me that while I was still working on a, on a uh, typewriter, I would have just pulled out my knife and committed seppuku right here. Because <laughs> I am not a typist. I am not a typist. But especially back then, I wasn't a typist. But I'm working on a computer, so bring it on. <laughs> so this is. So then uh, began the seven rewrites of the Arrows books. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, circa 1984 or something. Am I yeah, circa 1984. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, so, uh, but that must have been pretty exciting, right? Oh my God, I was so excited. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like you were already a fixture of the con scene. This is one of the ways I know you guys. I, we, we've been to, I don't know how many cons at this point, a dozen or more. Uh, and not enough. Not, not enough, especially recently. Uh, uh, so, but from the beginning, you were a con goer, you were a fixture on the filk scene. Uh, that's sort of- And, and somewhat in, in the costuming scene too. Oh, we, didn't yeah. call, we didn't call it cosplay back then. Hmm. <laughs> it was costuming oh, okay okay was it was it different at all or is that just a name change the well there was no level, play involved so well the awesome. level of of professional finish and polish and construction has just skyrocketed since the mm. old days i i wonder this is uh, i'm i'm asking a question because i don't know uh Today, if you know, um, if you go to a like a, um, 
this is probably true for something like a world con but it's really true if you go to like a something like a dragon con a lot of the cosplay is uh people who are um their anime characters or their super superhero characters from movies like it seems to me there's just a um a much broader set of uh yeah. kind of movie tv kind of that's accessible to the average viewer uh, a lot of the costuming nowadays is indeed media costuming. Yeah, twenty-five uh, percent of uh, of all costumes are Deadpool now. I think. Mm. Yeah, it, it goes in waves, right? There's years where like it's Harley Quinn, it was Harley Quinn, and then like, right. <laughs> Every variation of Harley Quinn you could possibly ask for. Right. And some you didn't. Or some anime I've never heard of goes popular and like everyone's going around, everyone's Naruto and someone has to explain to me who Naruto is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, back, in, back in the day when I was doing costuming, there was kind of generic fantasy, which mm -hmm. meant I could wear a lot of my SCA costumes. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the costume contests, you had to be some specific character, but I think there was a lot more than from books than there is now. Yeah, yeah. I uh, so okay. So arrows. This is interesting. You had a background filth before you wrote the the arrows trilogy, and and this is interesting to me because there are songs, right? And the Valdemar books have songs in them. Yep. And 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 this is this is about you, not about me, Mercedes. But I have to, I have to say two things. And here's I'm going to say the first thing now. I'll save the other one for a little later. This is this your books were. This is one of the reasons why your books were important for me is because uh okay there's tolkien tolkien has music in it and and then it's and most other fantasy books didn't you know that i was reading uh or they refer to music but there are no songs right tolkien's full of song yeah um, that's one reason why i did it yeah and and, uh, and well, well it's 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 fairly simple uh most writers aren't poets yeah i think that's probably right um but, I was writing, I was, I was doing music in the SCA. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I was putting original words to folk tunes. Mm. Yep. Because there, there was, a, there was also the folk tradition in the SCA, except it was generally uh, in the Midwest where I came from, where it's too fucking cold to be doing outdoor anything. Uh, it was generally in smaller groups in, mm. after the, uh, the event and the feast was over, or it would be at whatever large venue you were having the feast at. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who would be chosen to do the minstrel business during the feast. Mm -hmm. But you didn't want to do that because that meant you never got to eat. <laughs> uh fantastic so so look i just want you to know that you and J.R.R. tolkien empowered me to feel like i should put songs in books that i wrote which oh I i'm so glad easily. that's yeah. awesome yeah so I, I don't do it i don't do it now because i'm on such a tight deadline mm. yeah yeah I would like to mention here, in case you didn't know it, that uh, DJ Butler is a fine musician, and I have one <laughs> yes, of his albums. Is. Yes, and, he is. Uh, oh, well, you're very kind. 
Very the good. DJ on there is not because he's scratching and 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 uh, and uh, spinning at at uh, at uh, some it's for, form. It's for don't here. jump. Yeah, he's 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 not doing that. It's it's his real name, folks. It's not because he's a turntable artist. Yeah, yeah. His screen name is MC DJ. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, okay, so so at this point, all right, seven rewrites is a lot, but you stick with it. You get the books out, and and I mean, at this point, are you still doing computer things for American Airlines? Or I was, yeah. I was, but I was saving my money. Yep. And I was friends with Bob Astrin through the SCA. Mm. I'm part of the Great Dark Horde, even to this day which was Bob Asprin's ACA group. The Great Dark Horde supposedly began when Genghis Khan sent his youngest son, Yang the Nauseating, out for cigarettes and he just didn't stop. So, uh, 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 Bob being a accountant at Xerox mm. had a pretty good handle on numbers and budgeting and stuff like that. He said, in order to quit your day job and be able to go full-time pro, you need a year of expenses in the bank and don't forget to expense in health insurance. Mm. Because we had, I think about that point, just lost Manly Wade Wellman to, to what should have been a $50 emergency room treatment that he couldn't afford. Ugh. It was a, uh, it was a, uh, a leg injury, uh, some kind of wound, and it turned into gangrene and it killed him. So he said, make sure that includes health insurance. Make sure that includes your taxes. One year expenses in the bank. You're going to need it. You need to have at least three books, preferably five in print. And each one has to have done better than the one before it. And you have to have three contracts for books you have not yet written. So you know you have at least one more year of expenses coming in from those three books. That's very prudent. That's 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 well, amazing. He was, he was he was slick about that. So I waited until I had exactly that. And the the thing that got me the contracts that enabled me to quit was Stephen King wrote me a cover quote for another Diana Tregard book contract. Um, Melissa Singer said, I can get you a, a pretty nice contract, but you got to get me a good cover quote. And Larry somehow had Stephen <laughs> King's home address. I have no idea where he got it or how, but he had Stephen King's home address. So I wrote to him and asked him, and along comes this wonderful letter, which is the... Uh, the Xerox is still on my wall. Uh, 
from Stephen King, uh, giving me a, a absolutely two paragraphs of various cover quotes. The one that people usually use is she'll make you stay long, up long past, your, past midnight. <laughs> um, and that got me a tour contract that cinched the deal on being able to quit. So I quit. And Larry has come into the picture at this point. At this point, we became entangled. Yes. Yeah. So, so tell became, me about that. We became quantum entangled. Meaning from far away. <laughs> exactly. We met in Meridian, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Okay. So go ahead, Larry. Your turn. Oh, how may I be of assistance? Um, yeah. Well, um, my career began back in 1983, I guess you'd say, uh, when uh, two people, uh, name of uh, Anne McCaffrey and uh, Michael Whalen, who was her cover artist, um, encouraged me to come into the fantasy and sci-fi field. Um, I was uh, doing. I was a student. Art. What's that? Doing visual art. Doing visual art. Yeah. At that time, I was a visual art student at the uh, University of North Carolina's. Uh, NC School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. Uh, so I was full-time college and still in high school at the same time um, and made it in on scholarship, which was great because I was broke. Um, and uh, they, they looked at what I had and they knew that I, would, that I was a fan, of course. And, you know, Pal introduced me because well, I like the thing about Stephen King's address back then, that was what I did. You didn't need to know everybody. You just needed to know Larry. But it was kind of a clearinghouse. And so I put together a lot of really interesting collaborations over the years, just from being a single uh, touch point for them. But anyway, uh, and I thought, yeah, well, if this is what the pros are like in this business, I, I, I think this is a good place to be. Um, and I'd always wanted to do book covers and behind you on screen right now are many of my book covers. <laughs> so she mentioned uh, Donald Walheim earlier. Well, uh, Donald really liked my artwork and that was, that was wonderful because I adored Donald and his work. My goodness, Donald and Betsy Walheim, Donald Elsie rather, um, were responsible for much of my childhood. And uh, he said, make these illustrated books because I had started working with Misty at that point. And he thought that it would be a really cool idea to have more than just a frontispiece. It was the first, first illustrated books Daw had done in like 24 years, 25 years, something like that. Yeah, they did some from some of Andre Norton's books. Uh, they did as illustrated versions. Was that Daw? Huh. That was all, and okay. uh, they Ned did. Ned Dameron, yeah. I remember uh, Ned Dameron illustrated uh, the Colura by Ann McCaffrey. Yeah, that was that was for. I was thinking Ace, but I don't know. No, it's not no. Ace. Somebody will know. Mm. This will be on the internet. Somebody yeah. will know. Um, and uh, so, so, which books are you illustrating here? Which are, which is the series you're working on? Well, 
I'll go you back a little your... more. Um, I was it was a lovely thing when I discovered the internet as it is now because I tend to think and talk in hypertext. So all these things link to each other. It comes back together. Uh, Misty and I met live on television uh, in Meridian, Mississippi, on local news, and by the end of that weekend together at uh, at the convention, uh, I was the art guest of honor. She was the author guest of honor. Uh, by the end of that weekend, we plotted our first book together, and it was called Ties Never Binding, uh, which eventually became the Wind series. And we were, of course, uh, in the 80s. <laughs> we're from the past. And uh, so it was a lot different than anybody might imagine now. Uh, it's These days, I find it's not patronizing to explain the context of things like that because the internet really did change everything um you know if you could imagine that that uh, there there were no fax machines at that time there were no cell phones you know they're just the closest thing there were were like analog brick phones that would connect to an fm frequency and stuff like that uh and of course the bat phone there were there were commercial fax machines but you yeah, had, they uh, you had to either be in an office that had one so expensive or you had to go to like an Instaprint or some other copy place that had one. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. there was generally one in every office depot. But well, you, can't, you, 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 don't, you don't just you, you don't feed a, man, a, a 400 page manuscript page by page into a fax machine. <laughs> and woe betide the author that attempted it. You well, just don't do that. Yeah, very poor idea. Uh, uh, no, somebody, somebody did out there because Tor had to turn off their fax machines once. Oh, somebody God. spread their somebody spread their fax number all over the place, and uh, people started sending their manuscripts in on the fax machine. Bless their hearts. Well, uh, so Misty and I, uh, we hit it off great and we worked together for a couple of years. Um, I had a studio in uh, North Carolina and then I went to college at the uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, uh, where I drove around my 57 Chevy, <laughs> which I you still have. You drove his Chevy to the levee, but the I levee did. was dry. <laughs> I used to go out to the levee and, and waved all the container ships coming into port and they would wave back and it was lovely with um yeah with trish rogers from the band terra nova you know, she was awesome musician uh became a fusion chef anyway uh, misty and i just discovered we worked really well together we tended to, to amplify each other's best features um and the short story of my career from then on was I'd been working towards being a personality at conventions, you know, mm -hmm. just somebody you like having your picture taken with that kind of thing and treating people right. I'd help people with their portfolios and whatever and all, but it turned out people really liked my writing more than the artwork. Mm. Um, it sucked the less. Artwork or also with the artwork. I think it's also they like the I art. don't know, man. I don't know. Um, I'm uh, I'm happy with the work that I do, and that is why I fail. Um, I uh, I like being an artist. I like doing book covers and things to spec. Um, but I really train myself mainly to be um, an illustrator 
So I don't do great action poses most of the time. I do descriptive poses, that kind of thing, for then somebody else to animate or make a figure of or whatever. Uh, but I was having fun and uh, doing good deeds. And, and Misty loved doing good deeds. So we did good deeds together. Um, eventually, uh, I was like, honey, let's do the romantic thing. Let's let's get some tax breaks. And uh, yeah, uh, Misty and I got married in Las Vegas at the Excalibur in front of a neon dragon. By Merlin the Magician. Mm hmm. Yeah, Reverend Duckworth in his full Merlin outfit did the ceremony and a drag queen for our maid of honor. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Uh, and things just got weirder from there. Yeah. So I like this, Larry, I have to, I have to, I have to say this. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I like this uh, self-description where you say, hey, I was working on being, you know, someone you want to know at conventions and also be able to help people. I'm going to tell this story about you. Uh, so I met you two uh, at Worldcon in uh, Spokane. And we were at the, uh, it was then the Wordfire Press booth. Um, and, uh, and I think I might've been one or two people over to your right. We weren't like adjacent, but, you know, kind of talked and 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 interviewed. is that a thing is that a thing lucky adjacent yeah lucky like adjacent exactly Clearly. he was looming yeah i was trying hard to be lucky adjacent you're a, you're a very tall person so you that's, were definitely looming that's true um and and there was a young woman who was at the table and somebody in an electric wheelchair backed yeah. over her foot and then drove away and she was standing there sort of obviously in pain and you said and you said what happened you said and and you and you brought her back behind the table and i think it was the first day i'd met you or it was the second after the, the day after and i was sitting there holding this woman's bare foot while you were checking her toe and then splinting it with a with a broken popsicle stick with mm -hmm. open his backpack and like a cornucopia of medical and other supplies kind of exploded out and not in a disorganized way but like there was a surprising amount of good gear there and you splinted this woman's toe uh and i just that was uh yeah that's wonderful anyway oh i felt so sorry for her because um it's just it's not the kind of thing that gives you a really great feeling inside and uh but she took pictures of it as i recall and had me sign the thing so uh, yeah. okay um but you know preparedness is a nice thing people can take it overboard but it's good to have the basic tools with you you need to improvise um and this is and, back this is also back in the dark ages when it i can't recall any dealer's room ever having a medic on call yeah yeah but that was the thing that i did uh, and she needed it done um and and if she went to an emergency room she'd be out five hundred dollars and right most of the con and right on on top and on top of that they couldn't do anything that larry couldn't do right then and there because toes is toes yeah. and that's 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 how they do the that's how those that's how a medic rolls with the toe 
Well, uh, I had my art kit with me too, and I had some cotton pads in there that you use for burnishing and things like that. And so split them, turn them backside around to get a nice, uh, nice loft to the cotton and use that to wrap around it to cushion it, you know, so there wouldn't be such a shock and then use some foam rubber to build a bumper around it, then wrap that in some tape. And uh, fortunately, I had some lidocaine gel in my pack as well. So that at least brought the pain down for her. Um, yeah. So if you're out there, I hope you're hop skipping and jumping. Hope you're hearing this interview. Actually, that'd be excellent. Um, uh, I do occasionally refer to you, Larry, as a human pocket knife, and this is why. Thank you. Is just surprising. <laughs> let me kind of let me show you some <laughs> capabilities for whatever situation is my experience. People often see me wearing this. And <laughs> I'm not sure. This is my, Larry. What is this stuff? It's my necklace. Here, let's see if I can get a good look at it for you. This is just my uh, just oh. my daily carry stuff yeah. of you know the different tools and knives. This is a you know carabiner and lighter, uh, intense flashlight, retractable of course. Uh, different tools here. This is a ratchet set, a permanent pin, lighter light which is made to be just handed off to somebody if they need something. Tape measures, uh, intermediate light, uh, nail clippers, files, and, you know, all the things that you basically need to fix anything in an instant. Uh, because I've had old cars and wow, can they break at any moment in, in uh, extraordinary ways. 57 Chevy. Yeah, yeah the 57 Chevy I bought as, uh, as junk for $400 when I was 14. Yeah, and um, my my family and I restored it, and I drove it around, and it became kind of the family heirloom. I think uh, it's uh, it's been in our family ever since. That was uh, eighty two, mm. eighty one. Yeah, eighty one. I've had it since eighty one, and it's about to begin its third restoration because <laughs> there's never enough horsepower. Yeah. So, so, okay, so Larry, so, so you, mm. writing, so I'm aware, so you, you two wrote together the, uh, the Black Griffin trilogy, is that right? Oh, we had a great time. Yeah, yeah. that's another one that I have read. Um, yeah. uh, so, but it sounds like that you're, am I putting this together right? So it was Mercedes second series that you worked on, is that right? Third. Third, yeah, yeah, Misty and I worked together on, on a lot of stuff, um, and I help a bunch of other writers as well, uh, if they have broken toes. And <laughs> no, I, I'm the guy that tends to fade into the back, watch what everybody's doing. I, I see what's going on in the field here and there, and I can get people together to do some cool stuff if I think they're complimentary. Um, but I don't always take a cover credit on things. And uh, I've, I've worked on a billion dollars in movies without having a screen credit, you know, that's, that's just not what I'm into. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm more interested in being effective than being famous. Yeah. Okay. But still people in the know, it's, it's funny. Uh, uh, people that are actually in the industry and in the know really, really dig what I do and what I've done for decades. Uh, new people have no idea who I am. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, that yeah. actually worked. 
but wow, do Misty and I laugh until we're crying whenever we see someone on the net going off on, oh, he's just on Mercedes like he's coattails. I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> oh, yep. Oh, so, uh, we're never going to get through all of Misty's books at this rate, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do want to talk about one of the early seasons. I do want to talk about the Herald Mage. Oh, yeah. A little okay. bit. Okay. And, and, and here's why. So, again, this is, I have to say something. This is not about me. This is about Mercedes and about you, Larry. But I have to say this. Uh, the Herald Mage, Daniel, right? Uh, that's, that's the first gay character that I ever read. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a pretty conservative kind of environment. I had gay friends, but I had no idea because they didn't come out until they were in their 20s, which I feel bad about, right? I, like, suddenly I realized that gay family members and gay friends around me, but they had, but they had been, you know, they had kept it secret. So, so, um, so I guess here's my sort of hey that was meaningful to me that was a, that was that was perspective changing for me to read a book about a gay character so that's thank you but also um what brought you to do that like what i am interested because i think well, one of the things it's people... partly it's partly an accident hmm. uh in the first arrows book talia is reading about vanya hmm. And I established in those couple of paragraphs where she's reading that he's gay. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think anything more about it. And then I got the arrows out and I got the, the Tarman Kethry books out and Betsy wanted to do another trilogy. And the only reason, the only reason that he was in, that that, that bit was in the beginning of the arrows book is because I was doing all psionics, not magic in the arrows book. And Betsy said, well, there's got to be some magic in it because otherwise it's not a fantasy book. And I went, oh, all right, let me throw something together here, stick it in the middle and I can go on ignoring magic for the rest of the rest of the trilogy. Uh, so it came time to do uh, another contract and Betsy said, well, why don't you do, I can't remember if, if I came up with it first or Betsy came up with it first to do Vanya, who was the last Herald Mage. And so we did. So that's how that came, to became, came about. It was completely an accident. Well, there was another thing that happened then too. You mentioned there were griffins. Well, once. yes, I did. I mentioned there were griffins in the Herald Mage books once. Once. <laughs> and so whenever I came along, I, I loved I loved griffins. I just thought they looked great. Um, and there wasn't anything like you'd call a furry fandom then either. It was just, oh, some people liked griffins. Okay, that's cool. But you know who really liked griffins a lot? Andre Norton. And Andre Norton was the author who's, uh, well, the first book I ever bought with my own money was an Andre Norton book uh, and came to know her, came to be friends with. And then Misty and I were talking about projects and, you know, I bet Andre would really like something with a Griffin as a lead character. And that's where you got 
all of this there's an entire fandom built around griffins now not all by our doing by any means and now holy crow you should see what griffin artists are doing they're magnificent uh, but it all came from it being mentioned once and that's that's kind of how it is working with misty uh right now we've got a habit of building things in that we can pick up on later and then dazzle people with our continuity skills so it's all bullshit yeah, yeah if you build all in like 40 pieces of bullshit you can go and grab one at any time people go one, genius yeah. they thought that up 20 years ago <laughs> we did it's all bullshit absolutely uh but we are professional bullshitters yeah that, that is our day job you know, we lie to people convincingly, make them hallucinate from pieces of dead tree. And uh, yeah, it's a good life. It's a difficult life. Strange life. Yeah. Well, maybe you guys should pick kind of some highlights to share with me. I mean, I, I, I haven't read all the books. We've gotten like nine books into the, the huge career here, two huge careers um well, let me ask you this what are some of the favorite projects you've done uh Ooh. over the last 40 odd years right that's well i like doing i love doing series i really love doing series so i mean obviously the, there's the valdemar series which is enormous something like 40 40 odd books now um, and there's the uh urban fantasy series i do for bane Hmm. We do for Bane back there. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Have some covers. <laughs> the, uh, which is and these enormous. Larry covers also, right? Yeah. Yeah, Larry gets to do the covers on those. Yeah. yeah I'm particularly is... fond of the one just over your shoulder for Waters in the Wild with the kaiju on it. Yeah, yeah. kaiju. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, it's a funny thing because for the superhero series, the Secret World Chronicles. Um, multiple authors my specialty as a writer is being a co-writer it's a whole different skill set than just working alone on a book you have to have you know great sensitivity great social skills you need to be able to much like aikido match speeds redirect blend that sort of thing and uh, in that series there were gosh at the beginning five writers including you misty yeah yeah. Uh, it was originally Steve Libby, me, Cody Martin, and Dennis Lee, and then Steve had to drop out, and Veronica Gouchier took over for Steve. So the funny thing that happened there was uh, I was able to to streamline things so it all sounded like like one voice, you know, get everything uh, paced, um, and that was that was what i said i'd do for uh i know for the senior editor <laughs> who's tony weisskopf but she was also art directing at the time and said you want to do the covers too i'm like okay she says well you know the material better than anyone okay uh so i wound up as continuity uh continuity editor and cover artist on a series that's bizarre if they had me mixing ink, that would have completed it, right? <laughs> that's excellent. Uh, that's 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 the only one of your co covers that you've ever had that had a dragon on it. That's right. Out of all this career of doing hundreds of covers, no dragon. One dragon. 
I've never actually done a, a an organic dragon. Mm. I got to do a robot dragon for Avalanche. I was going to say, uh, I think that's yeah. right here, right? That's right. It's right there. there. Yeah. Right there. Yes, in the palm of your massive hand. That's correct. Oh, you've done that before. Okay. <laughs> that's one of my favorite series because it's so. It's the only time a writer ever gets to be particularly social is when they. When they can do a real-time collaboration, which is what we're doing. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah actually, um, I don't know when we're we're currently working on the outline for it, um, but we're diverging away from the superheroes for a little bit. Mm. We're working on something that the working title is Lilith's Lingerie. Okay, in this same series. No, not in the not in the series at all. It's urban fantasy. It has nothing to do with the elves on the road. Urban fantasy. Okay, which is um, over here, right? Silence. The premise. The premise is that the uh, the uh, mythical being Lilith is real, and she is running a a sexy lingerie and sex toys store in Toronto. All right. And there are, <laughs> and there are there are retired gods in Toronto. Uh, some of them are, some of them are uh, denizens of, and some of them are owners of a uh, a medieval themed pub in Toronto, of which there is an actual representation in the time period that we're talking about, which is like the eighties, I think. Uh, and it's it's it we have a genie in a dildo <laughs> that may be a first i haven't read every fantasy novel out there there are a lot but i've never heard of this before uh, <laughs> 2000 ad a series a comic series called devlin wah uh about a uh, vatican vampire hunter who has a demon imprisoned in a dong Okay. As his so, as his oh. traveling companion. Oh, so he has. He, I, I had no idea of that. He's such a great character. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, he actually, the dildo becomes quite sympathetic, which is another line you probably didn't expect tonight. I, this is David F. Sharrod's problem. I don't. I'm not worried about it. Sorry, David. <laughs> but thank uh, you, David. That's uh, fantastic. Um, Anyway, like I said, we're, we're, we're working on it. I don't know if we're going to be, we're doing it completely on spec. I, we work on it one night a week. I have no idea if we're going to be able to sell it, but if we can't sell it, we've already decided we'll go ahead and self-publish possibly through King of Cats, which is uh, uh, Alexi Vandenberg's publishing house. So Alexi's a righteous dude. He's a righteous dude, so we'll probably do it through him. Yeah. Hey, DJ. Yes. You can hear that sample. Hey, DJ. Uh, you mentioned the Harold Maid series. Yeah. And a lot of people have wondered, why isn't there a TV series? Why isn't there a Harold Maid TV series? It's it makes you wonder, right? All these books makes you think somebody would come around like, like Radar Pictures. Oh, yeah. okay. So oh, very good. So tell me about tell me about Radar Pictures. That's very well. Radar Radar Public Radar Productions um, has a couple of writers in their writer's stable that 
were working on Wheel of Time. And that was over. The writing part of that is completely over at this point. Uh, and the head of the studio of the production company asked these two, well, what do you want to work on next? Oh, cool. And it turns out that what's what's Brie? What Brie is one and who is the other, darling? I can look it up right quick. It it just escaped my mind while I was thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, lovely people though. Oh my gosh. Absolutely Sweetest lovely friends. people. Best anyway, of friends. The, these two friends literally met and bonded over the last Herald Mage in college. And this has this has always been their their pet project that they wanted to do was to make the last Herald Mage into a, a movie or a series or something. Oh, and that's what they told him. So uh, last uh, Michael Napoliello. That's no, that's the production head of production. That's uh Tringali. That's the uh the other head of production. Yeah. It's, it's Brie and and I can't remember his other her his other name. No, it's nuts. It just goes right out of your head. Oh well. Um well, anyway, great production well, anyway. company. These, these two lovely people uh, decided that they really wanted to do this and they convinced the producers. And so Radar contacted Russ and so we definitely have a, produ have a production company. That's mm -hmm. Radar, Radar Productions. We have a studio. I can't tell you who it is yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't tell you how far along it is. And bear in mind, this can fall apart at any moment. Yeah. You know, there's a reason it's called development hell, uh, yeah. but Radar are the people that brought you uh, Bill and Ted, um, Wheel Jumanji, of Time. Wheel you know. of Time. Yeah, Wheel of Time. They got, they got the Jumanji rebuilt, reboot with uh, with The Rock yeah. in it. Yeah, oh, so good. Uh, and uh, oh, Runaway you know, good Bride. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, so in development, Radar Pictures working on it. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, they know the material very well. Um, in some cases, they might know better than us. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one thing that is in, is is interesting, is fortunate, is great for them, is if they if they did three seasons of television or something based on those three books, and they were successful. Hey. <laughs> There's a lot of material they don't have to wait for us to write. To, to be Dozens of seasons of television right here. Pick, yes. pick, pick. Here's a one that'll and, blow your mind, and, DJ. And, well, and the other good thing oh, about yeah. it is because it's in digestible chunks, usually trilogies, but yeah. it's in digestible chunks, the audience is not going to get tired of those characters before mm. that chunk finishes. Yeah. And they can start a new story, but in the same world. Yeah. I remember about 15, 16 years ago, we did the math of just the books then. Um, and we figured out that if there was a comic book, we had an 11 and a half year run of a monthly already written. <laughs> yeah, but there hasn't been a comic, you know. Yeah. Nobody stepped up with a real offer, so yeah. Again, just okay. Wait. Leave the money on the table. Yeah. Well, maybe the TV show. I mean, that maybe that'll open up. That happens. So we're going to make sure everybody of has a course. good time. Yeah. Uh, wow! How exciting! 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get okay. you a cameo as the looming man. I'll take it, man. I'll, I'll You'll have a banjo. Out, whatever. I'll pick a. I'll I'll learn a banjo tune for you. Um. Well, you'll step on. You'll be like Ed Sheeran. You'll step on. You'll open your mouth and and pick up your banjo, and someone will grab the banjo and throw it on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about how you know, it goes with banjo. You know that different that that, that uh, old joke. What's the difference between a bagpipe and a banjo? Banjos burn better. That's funny. <laughs> Actually, you're going to like this. Here we go. If you listen to banjo playing and try and find somebody that's playing a Scottish folk song, then mm. listen to Scottish bagpipe, hopefully of the same song. Mm. The chorusing is identical. They, they both play a drone G, don't they? Or the bagpipe? They do. Yeah. And the chorusing, the chorusing is absolutely identical. And there's a reason for that. A lot of Appalachia was settled by the Scots and the Irish. And the Scots got there and discovered that their bagpipes were rotting. Hmm. So they picked up the banjo which doesn't rot. Yep. And they transposed that entire, so all of bluegrass comes from Scots folk music and bagpipe music. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So there you go, there's your, there's your strange trivia bit of musical trivia for the day. Yeah, is your Jeopardy winning answer right there. there uh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so are there other forthcoming projects that, uh, that you'd like to tell us about then? Or, or tease us about, or tell us what you can tell us. Um, well, still working on the books. Uh, unfortunately, we've got a third silence book, but Cody Martin just got a, is both wonderful and terrible. Um, he finally got a good paying, honest to God career. The problem for an artist though. Uh, yeah, because it's 10 hour days. Oh, and yeah. Often all weekend. He's getting, he's pulling in money like crazy. Mm -hmm. And this is not a career that's going to go out of style. He's, he's pulling computer wiring for large buildings. Mm -hmm. And when everybody was out in the pandemic is when sure. thousands of of businesses decided, well, as long as the thing is closed, we've needed to rewire for at least a decade, let's do it now. Yeah. And he's done everything from dentist offices to entire malls. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's a wonderful thing for him insofar as his career and because his boss is talking about selling him the business when he retires. So it's a wonderful thing for his career, for having a career finally, uh, but it's not so good for f finishing the book. So that's in the works. We're working on it, but very slowly. Mm. Um, and Larry and I are working on the second of the founding of Valdemar books right now. We're finishing it up. Very cool. Uh, that's with Daw still? That's with Daw. And with Daw from the beginning. I mean, that's oh, cool. absolutely. Yeah, mutual loyalty. Uh, yep. 
you, you stand by the folks that helped you out. Yep. Uh, I have a couple of tour contracts I need to finish. Um, and I've got a couple of, I've got another Bain contract besides, I think, silence. Mm. Uh, that one's, that one's a weird one because it ended up getting bounced around and incorporated into other contracts. So I don't know where that is. And mm. I don't, don't have the time or leisure to figure it out just at the moment. <laughs> I want to get silence out of the way and then, yeah. then have Russ talk to Tony and ask her what she wants to do about it. Yeah. She told me she wants a, a, a third cover from me for it. So, cool. okay. That's yeah. cool. Uh, I've been mainly doing, um, work on on into the west the valdemar book uh and quite a lot i can't talk about in the way of uh, production design mm. and uh, also been doing some map work which is always pleasant people love my maps i'm happy of that yeah we're trying to work out a merch line all right uh and yeah. larry's been doing most of the work on that uh, i'm happy to say it's with uh, ben dobbins as you may know as a producer executive producer from Zombie Orpheus Entertainment. Uh, brilliant man. Also a, a, a classical, classical pianist. He's, uh, he's an extraordinary piano player. Well, actually, he's, uh, he is the uh, uh, organist, <clears throat> organist for some big, I guess, Episcopal church in, uh, in uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. I think it's Vancouver now. Yeah. Yeah, he moved to Vancouver. Very I'd cool. like to move to Vancouver. Yeah, we'd like to try something called a vacation we've heard about. <laughs> no, sorry, you're supposed to be artists. You don't get those. That's you know, the thing is, DJ, uh, 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 Misty put it really well one time, I think, when, when she said that people don't want to write, they want to have written. Correct, 100%. Yeah. yeah, they don't like the process, they just want the goodies. Well, we keep so many things in production, you know, plus all of our behind the scenes stuff and charity work and so on. And um, we don't get a lot of hours off, but mm -hmm. we do have one thing very pleasant, uh, which is uh, we often work in separate buildings, even if it's on the same project, you know, we, we try to keep out of each other's hair. And then at midnight, we get together and we have dinner and we watch legendary, you know, uh, obviously, and uh, and exult in the glory of the ballroom scene. And it's an event. We get to see each other for two hours a day. But it's always great. a really fun two hours. We're playing with the parrots and we're having some dinner and and it's just really nice. And then we both just go back to work. But that's maintained the marriage for 31 years now, I believe it is. Yeah. So, not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah, it's very impressive. Well, look, let me have one more question. One more question. I'm just curious. I just um, have as many questions as you want, DJ. Yeah, it's your show, man. Well, thank you. But we're over an hour. I don't know. David Afsharad's probably trying to figure out if he has two segments now or one. But, but so I met you both out there in fandom in cons, and we've talked about cons you know uh, several times here and uh, i know in the last year a lot of us have not gone to cons at all um but setting aside covid right you guys have been very active in in the con scene uh and and i've just um 
I guess my question is, what keeps you coming back? I mean, you you, you oh. don't need it financially, right? You could, you're selling books. You got a lot of contracts. Well, actually, it costs us money to go to cons, even when our expenses are paid. So, so yeah. So I'm not surprised to hear that. So, so tell me what it is. What it is that draws you? Why do you keep going back after so many years? And uh, because we finally get to see somebody who's not on a screen. Yeah, the fans aren't numbers. You know, oh. um, we like to be able to actually meet the people in person and spend a little time with them. I, I worked with a, a race car driver named Richard Petty, who was very famous for treating his fans very well. And uh, I learned a lot of things from Richard. Uh, one of them is that you always give autographs and you always do it for free and you always make them special because it's commemorating the moment that you and that fan were the most important thing in each other's lives. Just for that moment when you're together and it meant something. And so you give them a souvenir of that. And most of the work that we do is very solitary. You know, the closest we'll have is, is a parrot, you know. Um, and it's a great chance to, to see the faces that are able to come to the con. You know, it used to be that we could give them hugs and do pictures together and talk with them about their pets, their horses, their interests, and that kind of thing. Um, it keeps us from becoming machines. You know, we work very quickly and pretty intensely. Uh, Less quickly now than we used to be able to. Yeah, and uh, well, that's that's getting old. That's both that's of us. That's getting old. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't. I can't do four books a year anymore. Yeah, it's um, it's been hard on us. You know, dues are paid, and uh, uh, it's always it's always turned out to be worth it in the end. Hmm. Um, so the cons were great because we'd also get a chance to meet people like DJ Butler, that dude. Yeah, yeah, we get to meet other people in the field and hang out and and just have some laughs together. You know, there's there's nothing better than when you've got a pro writer who's just stuck on press junket and you're like, hey, you want to go catch some dinner? Yeah, let's get out of here. And you get to hang out for a while and just tell dirty jokes and, and you know, have something nice to eat. Um, that's that's a big payoff. It really is. Um, now I'm I'm unable to do conventions for uh, you know physical reasons. I've got a spinal disease. I'm I'm uh, immune compromised from the chemo and stuff like that. Uh, but still, I've tried to stay active online and mm -hmm. uh, and help keep you know give people advice when I could. We can't look at unsolicited manuscripts, guys. I'm sorry. Nope. Um, but we care that you're doing things right you can describe stuff to us in general and we could give advice but no we can't look at your work until it comes from your agent but that said uh one thing misty does that i will i will trumpet for her is uh she's over on quora.com hmm. uh, which is a repository of experience mm -hmm. and uh, you can ask any question there and experts in that field will give you personalized answers. And Misty's been active there for quite a number of years. So anything you would ask her about writing and so on, go on over to Cora. That's fantastic. Misty, it's, uh, it's your interview. Last words, any last thoughts you want to share? Steak. 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Steak. Wagyu steak. Oh. Or Kobe beef mm. steak. Is it time for your two hours of dinner? And steak. I yeah, it's going to be hot dogs. No, it's going to be hot dogs or a salad or something. We get yeah. to have, we do have Wagyu beef. A friend yeah. of ours, well, Ben Olander, uh, who's written a couple short stories for us. Yeah. Um, he did a couple was, books with Dave Weber. He did a couple books with Dave Weber, yeah. and he uh, he's our GM on a on a Lord of the Rings uh, uh, remote tabletop, which is immensely fun. I I'm a Hobbit with a skillet. Mm-hmm. I can boring. take out. A, I can take out a warg with a skillet. Deadliest little hobbit you ever seen. Yep. And she's totally trying. Yeah, I'll kneecap you. Anyway, my oldest friend. So Ben, Ben sent us sent sent us some wagyu beef that showed up in his Kroger's during the during the pandemic. So we have two wagyu ribeyes that are <sighs> I, I, we get to have when we finish this damn book. Yep. Fantastic. That sounds really good. Wish you were here, DJ. Oh, I wish I wish I was too. Uh, and uh, you know, I look forward to you know whenever it is we see each other again next. Don't know when that'll be, but you know, it'll be a good time when I have. Yep. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, once again, this has been uh, Mercedes Lackey and Larry Dixon. Thank you very much for being on the radio hour. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Good night. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony world's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be. A cobra. The second week passed as the first had, with long days of cobra exercises and equally long, or so it seemed, evenings of military theory. Every day or two they received new neck wrap computer modules, each one allowing a new weapon in their arsenals to be brought into play. Johnny learned how to use his sonic weapons and how to retune them in the event that the troughs turned out to be particularly susceptible to specific frequencies learned how to trigger his arc thrower, a blast of high voltage traveling down the ionization path burned by his right fingertip laser, and how to efficiently fry electronic gear with it. And finally, learned how to handle the anti-armor laser in his left calf, simultaneously the most powerful and most awkward of his weapons. Pointing downward along the tibia, its beam was guided through his ankle by optical fibers to emerge through a flexible focusing lens in the bottom of his heel. Special boots were handed out with the computer modules that day, and as he tried to learn how to shoot while standing on one leg, 
Johnny joined the rest of the trainees in roundly cursing the idiot who'd been responsible for that particular design. Bai claimed they'd find out how versatile the laser was once they had their programmed reflexes, but no one seriously believed him. But through all the work, practice, and memorization, through the physical and mental fatigue, two unexpected observations managed to penetrate Johnny's consciousness. First, that Viljo's taunts disappeared almost entirely after the mess hall incident, though the other remained cool toward him. And second, that Bai really did tend to single Johnny out for special notice. The latter bothered him more than he cared to admit. Viljo's suggestion that the Moreau family had somehow bribed the instructor was absurd, of course, but at least some of the other trainees must have overheard the allegation. And if Johnny could pick up on Bai's pattern, so could they. What did they think about it? Did they imagine it implied he was getting special privileges off the training field? More to the point, why was Bai doing it? He wasn't the best of the trainees, certainly. Deutsch alone proved that. Nor, he thought, was he the worst. The youngest, oldest? Closest physically to some old friend, enemy? Or, and it was a chilling thought, did Bai secretly share some of Viljo's biases? But whatever the reason, there was no response he could think of except the one he was already using to endure with as much outer stoicism and inner calm as he could manage. It proved more effective than he'd expected it to, and by the time the second week drew to a close, he was able to face Bai's comments or work alongside Viljo with only the slightest nervousness. How much the other trainees noticed his new attitude he didn't know, but Halloran made at least one comment on it. And then the third week began, and all that had gone before paled to the relative significance of a quiet summer's stroll. Because on the first day of that week, they began working with their computerized reflexes. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkiewicz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Mercedes Lackey and Larry Dixon for sitting down and talking with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.